the orthopedic consultant who was going to be operating on me that night um, said to me that because of course they always do this thing where they ask how you've done it and what have you done you have to tell them the same story five times and um, and I'd explained that I'd been playing hockey and, and, and she was quite clear that that might never be a a possibility again um, and in fact what she said was let's just focus on walking for now um, and that I suppose that kind of filled, that filled me with fear because I hadn't really thought at that point that it might actually affect some kind of long term ability to do normal stuff That was Tom Nixon I'm Curtis Mansfield and this is Hips and Dip Tom's reaction to the news of his injury reminds me of actually quite a classic joke. A patient has been in a serious accident, and before going to surgery, they turn to the surgeon and say, Doctor, will I be able to play the piano after surgery? The doctor responds, Well, yes, of course, to which the patient replies, Good, because I couldn't before. Now, I'll leave it for you to extrapolate as you wish Tom's hockey ability from that statement. As a hockey player, Tom boasts a CV full of unrealised potential. He attended Wallington County Grammar School, where he played in the first 11 and was school hockey captain. At the same time, he progressed through the England hockey pathway, playing for his county in Surrey, South England, and also receiving a call-up to the England under-21 squad. He's very keen to caveat that point by saying he has never actually made it onto the pitch uh, with England. However, he has still been on a more impressive bench than I certainly have. In the years that followed, Tom has spread his time across various elements of hockey as a player, umpire and coach, as well as performing multiple committee roles, including being the Southern County's welfare officer. So in this episode, we're going to meander through Tom's experience of life-altering injury, all the way through to his role in making sports safer for the next generation. So it's now time for me to introduce ex-international bench warmer, Mr. Tom Nixon. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here, thank you. Nice to meet you. We know each other already. That's true. Um, I've known you what now for about four years, is it? I think since I joined yeah, this club. About that. Um, and it has been eventful, to say the least. <laughs> Okay. Uh, <laughs> Has it? Uh, well, I think so. I ended the last episode, actually, by saying in the coming weeks, I've got a few interesting guests to come, uh, including a specialist chef from the FA, uh, a hopeful 2021 Olympian, and sort of a head of sport. Um, which of these are you? Well, I did I did listen to your previous podcast last week and thought, I don't fall into any of those categories. I can do some cooking, but I wouldn't say I was like a specialist chef, chef <laughs> or anything. Right? Uh, so what are you doing here, then? Well, I hurt myself. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Um, yeah, so Tom, you're actually unique for many reasons, uh, but most notably, you're the first guest I've had who's actually asked to come on the show. Did I ask? <laughs> and you're also the first guest I think who's actually ever listened to the show before. Uh, <laughs> and therefore, you understand the format. So, I start every week by asking how you found 2020 from a health perspective, including a physical point of view, mental and social. Uh, so, yeah, open question. How have you found 2020? 
I think I've I've found twenty twenty a difficult year for for lots of reasons. Um, from a from a mental perspective, um, I think generally as humans we're um, we're predisposed to work in social circles. So much like um, much like kind of Wales, in fact, Wales is a great uh, a, a great kind of comparator between humans. They thrive in familial circles, in social circles, and in bubbles. And when you get Wales on their own they don't really respond very well and i think humans are very much the same so this whole lockdown um not once but twice this year um has has meant i think that that lack of social contact and face to face and seeing people has been quite difficult and quite a challenge to to mental health um from a physical perspective i spent most of the year looking a little bit like a whale i think <laughs> um and I suppose I'm the kind of person that, that thrives best in kind of team environments or team sports. So whilst it's been, um, I think, maybe successful years for some people to get back into fitness or get back into exercise by doing individual um, individual fitness, whether that's running, swimming, those kinds of things. For people that play in team sports, I think it's been quite a challenging year who maybe don't want to do individual exercise. Yeah, because I think what's quite interesting with you is you, like me, are people who have a split life, if you like. So we have our sporting life and then we have our work life. Unlike, you know, say a physio who's always around uh, the sporting world. Obviously, your professional rugby player is always around the sporting world. We seem to have a job which has nothing to do with sport. And then uh, those hours, a couple of hours at the weekend or an hour in the evening where suddenly we have something we actually enjoy doing. Uh, so how have you found COVID having taken away almost probably the most enjoyable part of your week and just being left with the work part? It's quite difficult because you, you naturally um, you naturally have breaks at different points in your life, like in your, in your weekly life. You have a break when you leave an office and you go home and then you do something else. You have a break when you stop working or you, you have a weekend and you go and do different things on the weekend to what you would have done during the week. Like like sport for instance and where for people that maybe thrive in team sports and play in team sports because that's a different part of their life and separate to work it's difficult when the only thing that's available is work but also work from your home so you're um you're almost you're either always at work or you're always at home um and and that can be quite challenging so i certainly found that a challenge okay and then how have you found have you found it hard socially? Because obviously you, I know you're someone who's quite a sociable person um, and obviously you've been restricted to seeing a very small group of people, particularly for most, obviously you haven't had hockey for the majority of this period. So have you found that, just taking away that entire social bubble you had? I think it's certainly made me think more about who I want to see and 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 value the time that you've got to see those people more. Um, for me personally... I think I've managed okay. I've managed to get out of the house. I've managed to see people. I've managed to go for walks. I've managed to to um, to kind of maintain seeing my social circle of friends. I suppose what has been difficult is all of those other people that you come into contact with in your life. Like f- from my perspective, I might see on a Saturday at the hockey club forty people at different points throughout the day. Some of them I might not have seen for a couple of weeks. There's always a a nice little hi, how are you? How's things going? And it's that kind of seeing lots of people that you're not able to do, and that can be difficult, I think. Right, okay. So, um, 
I think that was all very interesting, actually. I think, I think said so I alluded to in the introduction. You have a very impressive junior CV. Um, yeah, overstated. So, <laughs> obviously, county hockey and south hockey, and then obviously you're on the bench for the international team. Um, Great didn't bench. get on the pitch, but as I have pointed out, it was a far better bench than I've ever sat on. And I had a wonderful bench jacket for for a reason. <laughs> it's those times. <laughs> So I suppose, why did that impressive junior CV not lead to more achievement later in life? Was it a change in your priorities? Was it a struggle with that sort of more professionalism required? Or was it just a coincidence? What, what went, what, to put it bluntly, what went wrong? I suppose nothing went wrong, so to speak. Um, I think my, my life went in a different direction. And, and I... At that time, I decided that I didn't go to university, so I didn't go to university when I was 18, like most people. I went to university when I was 21, and I decided I'd been working in a number of different jobs. Um, I originally wanted to take a gap year and ended up effectively doing like a degree in gap years and thought, actually, maybe now is the time that I want to start thinking about a career. And I didn't really want to progress down the kind of the sporting route. I didn't really think it was for me, um, that kind of that kind of level that's expected of you. Um, by that time, I'd, I'd kind of always, I'd, I'd made some poor health choices um, and um, and actually thought that I kind of needed to do something very different. So I took a complete break from, from sport for a couple of years whilst I went back to university. I didn't yeah. play university sport. I wanted to kind of try and do something else. Um, for me, it didn't really, um, it didn't really suit who I was as a kind of a sociable um a sociable kind of friend not friend not friendly but um kind of all rounder and i think there's a level of elite performance that you have to be very focused on your team what you're doing your your skills as an individual whereas i think my strengths lie in focusing not just on on me and one particular team but certainly as i found a, a, a number of different people a number a range of teams and and that kind of overall structure yeah no of course um I think we're going to sort of park the elite yeah. side of sport there um, and focus more on where you are now. So you're now uh, sort of club captain at um, a club called Addiscombe Hockey Club, uh, where you also play in the men's ones sometimes. Uh, more often than not this year. When I'm not injured. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so yeah, that's where we find you now. And a couple of years, well, was it a year ago? A year and a half ago now, you had probably one of the most horrific injuries I've certainly come across on a hockey pitch. Um, you broke your kneecap or patella, um, which we don't have to have seen that to understand that's not a desirable outcome. So set the scene for the events that preceded this injury and then what happened in the immediate aftermath and then sort of your journey to where you are now. So I broke, I, I, I did this in, in June, June 2019 and in the off season. So We'd finished our league games and we were doing our summer league, which um, which doesn't actually really count for anything. It's just a nice way to continue playing some hockey throughout the throughout the summer. And um, I was in a match. Um, we uh, we'd had a short corner awarded awarded against us, and a short corner for for non hockey people is where you've got um, it's almost like a penalty. It's a guaranteed opportunity to score, but it's got a few different people standing in different places. So all the attackers will gather around the top of the circle. And four defenders plus the goalkeeper will stand in the goal mouth. Um, quite why? 
It's absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, I know. Quite quite why you've got a sport where four people who aren't wearing much protection other than a gum shield and maybe a face mask would stand in the way of an oncoming hockey ball. Um, That's not it's, light. It's not a tennis ball. It's not a ping pong ball. It's heavier than a cricket ball. It's probably it's probably the hard. It's probably the hardest. I, I think it's the hardest ball that you might play with in the team sport. I think. Um, I have to fact check that. <laughs> I definitely fact check that. This isn't a Donald Trump speech. I would definitely fact check that afterwards. Um, but um, so I was I was standing on the left post, um, and um, the the ball was injected uh, to the top of the circle, um, and then um, the striker took a strike. The ball was on the floor. It was rebounded by the keeper off uh, off his right foot, and I thought, well, that's it. Short corners all over. Nothing's come of this. Um, an attacker picked it up about eight yards away from the goal line, probably from, yeah, about eight yards away from where I was standing, um, and turned and then um, and then did a did what's called a drag flick, so where the player rolls the ball up their stick and then back down and flings it off the end of the stick in order to generate as much power as possible and to put the ball at height, um, and, and did that, flicked the ball, uh, and, it, and it hit me square, square on the, le- on the, on the right kneecap, um, and went off the side of the pitch. Luckily, no goal was scored. But um, um, I think no matter how hard you just tried to explain that, if you haven't seen this before, you have no clue what's going it, it on. It still does sound quite Words like inject, ball rolls down stick, and is drag flicked towards a player. Just in summary, a ball moved very quickly from someone's stick, struck you with the kneecap, That's, and yeah. had less than desirable outcomes. So let's go from there. What actually happened at that point? It's a very succinct way of putting that. We could get this over and done with in less than forty-five minutes. That's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, ball through the air, hit me on the kneecap, um, and I mean, I've I've taken knocks to the um, to the knees. I've broken some fingers before. Um, I've had lots of um, lots of small injuries, um, and you get you pick up knocks and stuff. And I didn't really think much of it. I've I've been hit on the body before by a ball, and it was a little bit painful. And I jogged off. I jogged on it. Um, and I ran towards the halfway line because um, that's kind of what you do. Um, and um, and I got maybe about ten meters and and collapsed because I couldn't actually walk. So I'd, and I'm not really sure how 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 I managed to make it over that distance. Maybe it's a bit of adrenaline. But um, um, and nobody around me um, from my own team thought anything of it either. Perhaps there's a perception that oh, we've just been hit. It's fine. It's happened before. Um, and it was only when I kind of fell to the ground and then didn't actually get up that people thought, oh, actually, maybe he's maybe he's injured. Maybe he's actually done some damage here. I'm quite intrigued with some of the details, actually. Was there, like, a nice ping sound? What, is, what does a kneecap sound like when it breaks in half? What's the, what's I, the acoustics like? I generally didn't... I didn't, I didn't hear. I didn't hear a noise. I was, expect, I was expecting to hear it. Like if I'd have broken something, I was expecting to hear either a like a breaking sound, like a um, like a clunk, um, not a rip or something, but maybe a clunk or a um, that sound it makes when a cup falls on the floor, that kind of like, <laughs> or when you you know when you hit a coconut, a coconut shy. That's what I'm expecting. <laughs> that kind of like, I'm, I'm expecting <laughs> a coconut, yeah. Or when you hit a lovely sweet drive with a nice nice ping off the driver, yeah, a golf and just. <laughs> but I didn't hear anything like that, and and um, and I, I just thought I maybe, gosh, I can't walk. I thought maybe you know I, I, I just need some ice on this, and we get off the pitch, and then I'm sure I'll be fine. And and 
25 minutes later I, I, I had a load of ice on it I was doing all the um, I was elevating it um, thinking well this is this is alright I feel okay I was able to hobble um, to my to my car um, and then found that I couldn't get in my car because that then required a knee bend which uh, which wasn't wasn't forthcoming with my <laughs> knee <laughs> um, and I was like well actually I don't I don't maybe maybe I should go to a hospital and get this checked out thinking it'll all be fine and and it wasn't all fine and then what happened so you, you obviously got to the hospital um, I'm assuming was it was it immediately apparent that your knee was knackered or was it like were they still thinking oh maybe it's just a sprain or you know yeah at, at, at that point it was um so, so when, when did you find out this isn't like a something going to walk off when you found out this was a serious so that was literally as soon as i had the x-ray um i i, I, I suppose had... i suppose when kneecaps in half the x-ray yeah that was, it's pretty categorical by then but um they don't they don't show you they don't show you the x-ray sometimes and and they don't always like to comment so radiographers quite often don't 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 like to say um what's happened or kind of give a give a diagnosis sometimes it's not obvious you know so they don't want to make those decisions and, and say well it looks broken to me but you'll have to wait for a doctor um but i did say to the radiographer i was like what, what's it looking like is it is it all right and i just got a um i just got a, a shake of the head and a a hand a shaking hand underneath the <laughs> underneath the chin going no no it's not great <laughs> and and it was at that that's point that I, that I knew no well no that's not no no oh dear um Actually, like it was, it was quite a traumatic experience because up until that point, I thought, well, this is all going to be fine. I'll be able to walk it off at some point. I might need a few days rest. I'll be back playing again next week. And it was at that point that it dawned on me that this could actually be quite serious. Up until that point, could have just been a big bruise, and this just and 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 it's just a bone bruise. Quite often that can happen, you know. On it's a big joint. It's a big bone. You know, like it could easily have not have been broken. But no, as it turned out, it was, it was broken, but not, and broken by some some length. It was in two whole pieces, and it's only supposed to be in one. <laughs> and that's a proper break. That's, that's not pro- one of those pathetic hairline <laughs> fractures or that I've had. That's a proper, <laughs> proper one. Okay. Um, and then how long are we talking from that moment of impact, as 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 it was, to uh, to the point where you could play, sort of. Well, firstly, until you could play full stop again, and then until you could play like at a reasonable level again. I mean, debatable really as to what a you might call a reasonable level, and b whether I've ever really been able to play. <laughs> as as you know, being a teammate, um, I think the the doctors were 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 quite um, quite cautious and conservative in their estimate of how long it might take me to to return. Um, I was I was told when the um, the orthopaedic consultant who was going to be operating on me that night um, said to me that because of course they always do this thing where they ask how you've done it and what have you done you have to tell them the same story five times and um, and I'd explained that I'd been playing hockey and, and and she was quite clear that that might never be a a possibility again um, and in fact what she said was let's just focus on walking for now um, and that I suppose that kind of filled that filled me with fear because I hadn't really thought at that point, they might actually affect some kind of long-term ability to do normal stuff. Mm. I was thinking, well, okay, it's going to put me out of action for a while, but I'll get I'll get back to it. And actually, what I was being told was, well, let's just park the hockey, 
let's focus on you being able to walk because at the minute that's going to be an impossibility for you and that was I think what what kind of threw me a bit um but so once I had my operations and stuff I was um I was um, the prognosis was that let's take 12 weeks to to get back walking properly and then we'll see um and then we'll see how how you're doing then as to whether you could maybe start to to do a bit of light jogging and see what that looks like and you've um, never been a fan of light jogging have you I've never been a fan of light jogging you know um however and in in this case I really understood the benefits I think of of doing some light jogging um as it turned out all in all I think I went back to playing um to playing some kind of hockey I played in a match um uh I played in a grass match at the beginning of September and I did this in June and I went back to playing um a, an actual proper game of league hockey at the end of September um but it wasn't until uh September 2020 that I found myself playing at the level that I'd previously been playing before so it took a over a year so over, over a year to come back to, to where I was before and and I suppose going back into into hockey in September 2019 they told me that I would that I'd be walking again properly in 12 weeks time maybe um once I'd had the surgery and how successful that had been um but the hockey was still off the cards so to go back into playing some kind of hockey 12 weeks later I was I was just grateful for that I suppose not expecting to be able to at some stage go back to where I was playing I thought that actually I I was I was done for done for it now that was it done so you made quite an interesting point there about at one point in your recovery it became a matter of will you be able to walk again freely so it wasn't entirely gained around will you play again it was will you even walk again at one point or walk again freely um, that brings you on to this interesting thing I found while preparing for this. So I read an article in the European Journal of Trauma and Emergency Surgery, which basically focused around a group of patients in Denmark, I think that's 49 of them, and it looked at their quality of life post a patella fracture, but not immediately post. It was, on average, eight and a half years later, so looking at the long-term impacts. And I'm not going to bore you all the details, but essentially... Following these patella fractures, most people had a worse outcome long-term. So there was increased risk of osteoarthritis and there was general complications associated with these patella fractures. So although these, this is this, imagine they're all athletes and they're not, some of them might be elderly people, some of them might be younger people, some of them might have had no interest in sport at all. I don't know how these injuries occurred, but on average, their quality of life was worsened by the experience compared to their equivalents in the same age bracket. So, and that links really well into our point before. So, do you think, do you think about the long-term implications of your injury or injuries as general, or are you still very much focused on, can I play sport again? I certainly think more. I certainly think more about the long-term impact of injury now than I did before. Um, I think I've seen I've seen lots of people with injuries. I've seen lots of injuries on on the hockey field and and off it in different settings, and you think. Wow, how can somebody come back from that? Um, you know, particularly in our own in, in in our own sport, I've seen people break collarbones, I've seen people break knees, I've seen people break feet, toes, fingers, noses. Um, you know, we've got um, in hockey, um, one of our international players um, got a ball in the face and lost his vision. Um, lost vision in half half his vision. Lost his vision, his left eye. 
um, and and he's now back playing at international level. You know, so the possibility for 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 recovery from injuries is always there. But yeah, I certainly um, I certainly think now about the long term impact more than I did before. And I think some of that changes with 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 age, with age and with research as well. So certainly after I, um, um, when I was going through my recovery, I was talking to lots of people that I knew had had um, total knee replacements, um, yeah. people that had had similar injuries um, in their knees that affected their kind of um, that affected bending and moving their legs. So I was talking to people that had torn. ACLs and MCLs, um, and what I was hearing from 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 people was that um, generally speaking, their walking is fine; they haven't got a problem with 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 that. But doing kind of day to day things like bending down, picking things up, um, those kinds of things, getting upstairs sometimes, those kinds of things were, were were much more of a struggle. Things that that kind of caused their need to come into contact with surfaces. So, you know, time that they spent. Um, yeah, like if you try and reach over like the side of the bed to get a um, to get a remote or something, and you know you've got to put weight on your knees um, and put your body through your knees. Um, those kinds of tasks were um, were almost impossible because they couldn't feel the affected knee. A lot of their operations um, had caused um, nerve endings to be severed in the front of the kneecap. Such as that feeling, they wasn't. They're not sure what what. Um, what they're actually doing so yeah so what's interesting as well for you and obviously for me is we're complete amateurs we stand to gain nothing long term from sport there's no financial effects from us playing sport so when I spoke to Charlotte and I spoke to Dom both of them obviously had a sort of a risk a risk reward sort of way up when they before they do a sport so if I was saying to you you might fracture a kneecap but you're going to get paid 50k a year to do so, then that kind of shifts your mentality maybe. So maybe you think about the future, but also the financial gains you get from it. Whereas if I'm saying to you, you could break a kneecap, you might not be able to walk properly in the future, you might not be able to play football with your kids in the park or carry your grandkids or whatever. Suddenly there's no financial benefit. So it's purely, right. it's purely short-term enjoyment potentially versus long-term effects which is a completely different equation i think that's the difference that's the difference between amateur you know the risk of injury in amateur sport versus the elite game as you say there's that risk reward ratio that if you injure yourself in an amateur sport you might not be able to walk again if you injure yourself in the elite game yeah you might not be able to walk again but you're going to be very well compensated for it and it's likely that you'll have more medical support more healthcare professionals around you to support an age of recovery there's a higher risk or there's a higher chance of you recovering just as well potentially there's someone who does it in the amateur game but there's also that that kind of reward for doing it as well so i think mm. from an amateur perspective people don't go into people don't go into playing team sports or individual sports thinking what if what if i get injured here people don't people don't cross the road with that kind of mentality but you do make those decisions every day um about you take that risk whether you're crossing the road or whether you're standing in a goal waiting for a ball to come towards you you take the risk that something might go wrong um and you don't really think about the long term 
effects of what might happen. No, no, and that is, um, I think that's going to be quite a common theme throughout this series, that kind of weighing up the long and short-term effects of injuries. I found this quite interesting, actually. I came across this in the Journal of Orthopaedics, so I'm assuming it's a, a legitimate fact. Um, apparently, 1% of all fractures globally, I think it was globally, or particularly in the UK anyway, let's go over the UK for now, are patella fractures. I thought that was really strange. I've never met anyone in my life, apart from you, who's had a patella fracture. Which means, up until two years ago, I'd met no one ever who had a patella fracture. It doesn't surprise me, actually, because um, doctors were certainly telling me that, that, it's, that they don't see this kind of thing very often. Which also, which also kind of made me think, well, how are you going to fix it if you've never done one of these before, or you yeah. don't see them very often? But 1%, I'm, I'm, I mean, that's a high number. I'm, like, you, you'd, I'd, I'd assume, uh, you know, leg breaks... Uh, must is probably maybe fifteen to twenty percent. Right, so there's no there's no facts here at all. It's entirely made up. But like imagine like wrist breaks must be quite high. Arm breaks. These are sort of things you see. Elbow breaks, collarbones. These are sort of things you see a lot of. I don't see anyone you breaking would... knees. So what are one percent of people doing that's causing patella fractures? Yeah, what's going on? I think one percent is quite a low number because you'd 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 think that the risk of breakage or, or the kind of the number of fractures um, fractures is is dependent on the size of the bone. But only a very and small percentage of people are stupid enough to stand in a goal. Clearly, and the ball up. clearly that's clearly that's what it is. Um, you know, and and I I would also I'd suggest that that perhaps. Out of that one percent, I'd say there's a much higher percentage of people breaking their kneecaps who are older. Yeah, that's true. I think. Yeah, um, so same obviously. Yeah, they're kind of like injuries, fall. Yeah. Those kind of like bigger bones are more likely to break the older they get. I guess you don't. So I think you know, seeing someone breaking their kneecap through through the ordinary course of a team sport is pretty uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, but because you would expect bigger bones, less chance of breaking smaller bones more chance of break so fingers toes wrists arms those kinds of things you expect to see more of bigger bones like pelvic fractures patella fractures collarbones yeah maybe not so much because they're bigger bones elbows you know those 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 kinds of big big strong dense bones you know maybe not um but it is an interesting question about what what one percent of the UK are doing in order to break their kneecaps? It turns out the answer you're probably right. The answer is probably they're aging, <laughs> which, which, which is probably the answer right there. Okay, let's just move on. So I want, there's quite a few things I want to get onto, and I'm uh, conscious of time flying by. So, sort of, I think to sort of almost to round up this section on your injury, I'm quite intrigued by how it affects a player psychologically. This kind of injury. So, basically, how do you on a weekly basis, still stand in a goal, having been through what you've been through, knowing full well the next shot could be the same injury again, you could have another serious injury. I mean, I suppose a comparative would be a boxer who's been knocked out, still gets back in the ring, knowing full well they could get a serious head injury again. Um, I mean, this wasn't a freak accident as such. This wasn't like you were running and you slipped on a banana on the side of the pitch and ran into a pole this is a part of the sport this is something that happens on a weekly basis you have a high risk of this or a similar injury happening again but you as many other people do just go show back into it again can you explain have you had any ill effects from that psychologically 
I don't think I've had any ill effects from it. I certainly think twice about what I do on a hockey pitch. Maybe I don't. I don't. Don't dive in for for that heavy tackle as much as I might used to. Um, oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, maybe 50-50. <laughs> I win lots of them. It's, yeah, I don't. I don't you dive win 50% in. Fifty percent of them. That's the point. You lose the other fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I do. I do sometimes take a couple of seconds to think maybe I shouldn't do that or. What will happen if I fall over? I could, you know, could could unbalance myself and could end up disastrous again. But I guess you do it because it's part of the sport, you know, and 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 kind of the mentality of that 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 player mentality is about win, wanting to win and wanting to, in 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 my case as a defender, prevent a goal from being scored. And there's a lot that you'll go to to do that. Um, and I suppose I think about it more now than I did. You know, a year ago or two years ago, I previously broke a finger. I mean, I've broken lots of things, but I previously broke a finger, and um, and I got my finger caught between um, a stick and a ball. It wasn't horrific at all. I, I kind of shattered the bone in the end, and I came back a little bit too early, and I went into a short corner, and I got hit on that finger again, and I just stood there and I cried in the middle of the goal. It was so <laughs> painful, um, and and I suppose you, when you, when when I think back. I think you do that because actually, what you enjoy more is 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 the team sport, and you want to do things for your teammates, and and ultimately, you know, you're you're kind of sacrificing different things for each other in order to be able to win. And when I first came back, I certainly felt I certainly thought twice about standing in front of a a ball coming towards you again. When I came back originally, I was in a knee brace, um, one of the big kind of like knee braces that's got a load of protection around the outside. So I, I also kind of figured that if I'm hit on the knee, then yes, it might hurt, but it won't hurt too much because there's a layer of protection in front of it. Um, and that, I suppose, allowed me to kind of build back up into being fully confident to be able to do that again. And I suppose a lot of it is similar to, you know, how do you, how do you get back, you know, how do you get back on a bike when you fall off that, you know, when you're, when you're five or six years old? You know, how do you, how do you get over different trauma that happens to you in, in, in different parts of your life. Certainly as a child, you know, you might have had a bad experience with a pet once and then that's it, you can't, you know, you, you can't stroke a dog again, you know, or, you know, how do you how do you get over those those things psychologically? Yeah, no, I think it is a really interesting point, actually. I think um, if you look at the elite, like, elite side of sport, I mean, there's a classic example this week with, do you follow Formula One at all? Um, Not really, but I do team. know there was a fire. Yeah, so. <laughs> So, uh, it's pretty big news. <laughs> Roman Grosjean, who's uh, I think I pronounced that right, he's a, he's a French racing driver, um, had a horrific crash where, he, I mean, basically well, he went through the barrier. Went through a barrier. His, car, his car was left in two halves. The half he was in was on fire. Um, I mean, the fact he basically was well, he dragged away, but he walked away from the, the crash. Um, I mean, this I found that amazing in terms of like technology involved in these suits and helmets that he made away with sort of fairly minor burns. But, I mean, how on earth does he get back in a racing car, whether that be this year or in a couple of years' time? I'm sure at some point he probably will. And I don't know how you can even press the accelerator again, having been through that sort of scenario. And you see all the time, you see so many athletes come back from these horrific injuries. And it, I, don't, I don't know, I mean, I have a laugh to talk to psychologists, I suppose, to understand that thought process. But it takes a lot to do the same thing again. Now you know the outcomes. You, It's bad enough if you've seen it, like... I don't say if you're, uh, I can't remember who the driver was behind him. If you're the driver who witnessed that firsthand, it's bad enough for you to drive again. But if you've actually been in the car, I don't know how you even... 
I mean, isn't 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 doing the same thing multiple times, knowing the same outcome is going to happen or could happen? Isn't that also one of the various definitions of insanity as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit rude. I mean, he can't he can't defend himself, old well, man, <laughs> and his hospital bed. You know, but but you know, I think you know between you know between you and I, there's been some 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 severe injury and um, some severe insanity, and, as well. some, and possibly some severe insanity. Yeah, that's true. You know? But I think there is you know. There is that element of, of, of do it quickly, you know, focus on that recovery and that goal of going back to what you you love doing and focus on why you liked doing it as opposed to what might happen if it doesn't go to plan. Don't let the fear kind of control you, I suppose. So how has, how has Tom Nixon changed um, as a man before and after that, that night? Um, I'm not looking for some heroic survivor story. This isn't crime watch or some netflix special um i mean in terms of a sporting a sporting context so do you train differently now do you manage your body differently your diet all the things which this podcast is based around this series of podcasts have you changed at all the way you go about hockey and life and fitness i think so i think um I think one one of the key things that breaking my knee taught me or showed me was that it could all end very quickly. So make the most of it while you've got it. And I think I've been lucky. I've been lucky to come um, to come back to the sport that I love playing in a in a way that's allowed me to get back to the level that I was playing at before. And I don't think everybody who has injuries like that is afforded that luxury sometimes. So certainly it's changed my mentality and I think I've come back with a little bit more drive. I've wanted to kind of push myself a bit more, do things that I maybe would have been apprehensive about doing before because I want to continue and play for as long as I can still, whilst I'm still able to. And I'm lucky to have been given that second chance, if you like. So it's certainly changed me in in that sense. Um, and I think you know, 2020 is... a very strange year for lots of different reasons but I think for me it's made me kind of it's, it's made me appreciate what I've got and and you know what I've got is a essentially control over my own destiny again control of my own fate I've got two working knees albeit one works better than the other but um and I've kind of got the ability to do that for myself so yeah it certainly has changed me that wasn't too survivory. Was well, it? That's, that was the emotional rubbish I'm trying to avoid, actually. Right, I um, see. <laughs> I, I mean, in terms of, do you do more squats in the gym? <laughs> do you, oh, I see what you mean. Do you run more? Do you rest more? Do you ice? Do you do more icing? Do you do more rolling? I mean, is there, is there any way right, okay, you so change in, your approach in, to sport? In terms of practical stuff, what's changed, <laughs> as opposed to give us a spiel with some tissues, right? Pretty much, yeah. Well, um, I certainly, I don't train more, Um and I certainly take longer rests between doing things. So I've gone from playing three games in a weekend sometimes or playing a game, umpiring two, doing some stuff with the juniors on a Sunday, going to a junior game, to just doing a few things. I've gone I've 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 reduced the amount of kind of pitch time that I've that I've given myself because I've certainly kind of recognised that actually that rest period needs to be a little bit longer for me now. Um and that's been a big change because, you know, I think I was quite an active person before I did this. Um, you know, and certainly when we go back to playing summer hockey, I won't be playing four times a week. I might just play the once, maybe. Right, so over the course of this series, we've had 
a number of more prominent athletes, and I'm sure we'll have some more in the future. Um, but I think it's unlikely we'll have someone who's quite well, quite so well situated within this sort of hockey and sporting pyramid. So I want to focus more on that. So on that note, I mentioned introduction, but you're a county and regional coach. So how do you manage injuries off young players? And perhaps more importantly, how do you manage workloads for these young players? So, I mean, I myself sort of try to climb that ladder as much as I could. And you look often that you'd have sort of junior matches as well as men's club matches but you'd also have your county matches potentially regional matches on the same weekend so for a good young player you could be playing three or four games easily over one weekend so how do you manage that from a coaching point of view there's a couple of things here i mean it's important to manage kind of manage the workload of players that you've got but equally injury prevention is 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 key so ensuring that players aren't playing too much and particularly young players you know nobody should be pulling a hamstring at the age of 13 for instance you know caused by overworking on a pitch and playing um playing four games of hockey a weekend is perhaps not sustainable so i think it's important to make sure that the contributions that young players make to teams is a valuable but also relevant to that young person and specific so that doesn't mean that somebody can't play in four games over a weekend, but it means that, that what they do in those four games should have a tangible benefit for their for their development. Potentially, that could mean that, that, that a junior player might play 20 minutes in one game, half an hour in another game, 40 minutes in the next game, 50 minutes in the following game, building up and stepping up their involvement. It could mean that... that for for an aspiring junior who wants to play adult hockey, they've got their junior match that weekend, so they'll play a full 70 minutes of their junior match and then they might try out 10 minutes at the beginning of a half, 10 minutes at the beginning of the next half and kind of rotation. Certainly from a performance perspective as well, um, with performance squads, it's important to have a, a bigger squad because the commitment that you're expecting from young people is is high intensity um, and you're expecting people, you know, you're expecting players to, to kind of give their all to that game. But you don't want them to give their all over seventy minutes. It's 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 going to lead to burnout. You yeah. want you want kind of rapid, um, uh, kind of rapid play. Twenty minutes, ten minute bursts, even seven minute bursts. Just on seven minutes worth of running, seven minute break, seven minute on, seven minute off. In exactly the kind of way that you might train, because um, hockey's not about being able to run and run and run for seventy minutes. It's very stop, start, stop, start. So your your method of play and your nature of play should 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 reflect that, and it's important for juniors to not be continuously playing and playing and playing because that's not gonna that's not gonna do them any favors in the long run, and it's certainly not how the game is structured anymore. Yeah, um, and I think that works really well in theory. I suppose the challenge comes when everyone's got their own self interest. So the junior club manager or club coach wants to do what's best for his team and obviously ideally win. Um, the men's uh, coach or captain's probably just struggling to get a team out so he wants players to play as much as they can obviously perhaps the regional level or whatever might think they're the top of the pile so they should get the most out of the player so I suppose as much as it sounds good on paper it must be really hard to try and balance those workloads in reality um, it's a huge balancing act um, in a, and, and, and I think what is lacking across a number of sports um, in the junior setup is that direct link between your kind of your your player pathways 
um, and your you know when you enter the national system and how that how that works in parallel to how junior sport is structured from a club perspective because you're right you've got the junior you, you know, you've got your junior um, managers who want want those juniors to play for them and their junior sides but you've also got men's captains who maybe a struggling to get teams out you've got you know some so you've also got some ladies captains who are in the same position as well um and you've got parents who are concerned about homework not being done that weekend yeah, and you yeah, and ultimately you've got you've got junior players who really want to play a sport because they really love it and they'll play as much as they can and quite often all of those parties don't speak to each other so there's a communication breakdown somewhere that you've got to be able to um to think essentially in the best interest of the young person and that requires all of those people involved whether that's the junior person then you know captain regional person to really get to know the young person and make make their hockey as specific to them as possible so that you know what else is going on in their life whether you're doing this from a from an amateur perspective in a club or from a, a professional perspective getting to know that junior, getting to know what makes them tick, getting to know what their other commitments are outside of their school and and, 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 and making this much more young person-centred. Mm. I remember getting to an age at school um, with the rugby setup where they told us you can no longer play for a club, um, or at least certainly not on the same weekends as school games, because up until then, most players would play for the school on Saturday and probably for their local club on a Sunday. But then it became... You, as a young rugby player, I've, I come away you were probably maybe fifteen, sixteen. It was you can't recover quick enough to play two games in, in two days. So that was the first time it ever really sort of occurred to me that you can't just keep playing. You've got to have you've got to have your priorities. And in this case, obviously, they they decided my school was a very good rugby school, so you're going to get your best rugby here. So you don't focus on anything else. You become very focused on that. And obviously, hockey's different because hockey you can play more than one game, but I suppose it's kind of educating. I think a lot of parents at that time were quite surprised when they were told, oh, your kids are only going to play for school now or they're not going to play for the club anymore. And it was almost a bit of a shock because I think some parents, speak from personal experience, believe the more you play, the better you get. So just keep playing, playing, playing is the best way to do things. Um, I mean, there is that mentality around practice makes perfect, but then that's what your training is for. You know? yeah. So there's an element of, of, of practising technical skills Um you know, and, but just and, com- continuously battering because, the body isn't often the best way. Well, it's never really the best way. And that can't be good for you long term. Well, exactly. No, and I suppose that's that for your role for you as a coach and someone in that setup to make sure the procedures and the rules are in place, as well as the education of coaches to make sure those players are guided in the safest way possible and also the best way possible for their development. So it's not just about being safe, it's also about being productive. Exactly. Ultimately, what you want to achieve for young people is you want to achieve outcomes. You want them to be their best self, and you want them to be the best hockey player they can be. And and thinking about this from from the young person's perspective, it's important that um, um, it's important that there's adequate rest and that and and the you know healthy body, healthy mind, and that it's not just about what happens on that pitch. It's about all those other things that are happening off the pitch that might contribute, and a lot of that could be. A game the day before and I suppose there are maybe nuances between sports and I would imagine in rugby that the, um, the, the recovery time might be a bit longer for instance or certainly the risk of injury is likely to be higher 
um, and the risk of physical injury is likely to be higher in 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 rugby than in hockey. Um, and I suppose you want to make sure that that, that young people are, are able to contribute the best that they can and create an environment where it's possible for them to do that without them being overworked or, or too tired to do that. Because a lot mm-hmm. of these setups will be different. So juniors will be playing with their school friends maybe on a on a Saturday morning with um, with adults on a Saturday afternoon and then with their peers in a club setup on on a Sunday. And that's three different groups of teammates. That's three different sets of expectations and that's three different... Um, three different environments in which that junior wants to perform and wants to compete. And sometimes that might lead to juniors overexerting because they want to prove, they want to demonstrate, they want to be good at their sport. And there is a yeah. huge role that a coach has got to play in in um, in, ins- in ensuring that, that, that juniors play only as much as they should play in order to prevent serious injury. Yeah, now, I mean, I assume you heard the episode with Don McGeeky a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, I didn't really pick up on it much of the time, but he made some interesting remarks, which I totally understand from his point of view, and obviously he's achieved a lot more in sport than I ever will, so I understand his perspective. But he made some interesting, interesting points about player injuries and how he wouldn't want someone to take him off the pitch when he was injured um, and therefore he wouldn't expect or he wouldn't want to do the same for someone else. Um, obviously, he did clarify that obviously within the, the guidelines, so obviously with head injuries and stuff, it's very clear when someone's got injury, they come off. And I'm certainly not questioning his management style or skills, but were you surprised by his attitude when it came to certain other injuries? Would you approach the game differently? Obviously, hockey and rugby are very different sports, but... Um, where do you draw that line in terms of that duty of care you have for those players? I think it's interesting, and 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 you know Dom's Dom's remarks um, certainly made me think about when he was talking, thinking about the the distinction between player mentality and coach mentality, mm. um, and the duty of care that, that that the coach has got. And in a junior setup, they've perhaps got a different a different mentality to to the coach in the adult setup, and it's it's completely understandable. You know, players. Players want to win. They're playing a team sport because they want to do well for their teammates. They want a collective win. They want to do the best that they can. They want to perform. So no player wants to come off the pitch. Um, and 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 equally, the coach wants to win. The the coach wants the team to do well. That's why they're there. Um, but there there are those times when 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 you've got to kind of make those decisions and say, well, it's not it's not appropriate anymore. It's not suitable. The safety element is really important. Um, because I suppose you're thinking more with you're thinking more with that what if mindset that we talked about earlier. Yeah. That as a player you don't often go into it with a what if what if mindset. But as a coach, you are certainly thinking about the what you if. You have to have that long term outlook for the person because yeah. they can have it themselves. Even even adults in that moment, yeah, you're thinking, Can I play on? Can I get back on the pitch? Can I play next week? Whereas as a coach, I suppose it's your role to look more further afield. It is. It's the role to look and also to look to look at slightly more broader than than that individual. Yes, that individual might have what they would consider to be a minor injury or a minor knock or something, and it might be it might be fine for them to play on in their mind. But as a coach, you're also thinking about the wider team. What is the what is the overall contribution that that player might make on the pitch if he's allowed to continue at the expense of the team? Maybe so you've got to kind of think about those things as well. I think and and um. 
you're absolutely right about looking long term at the long term effect um and the long term what if hmm. yeah okay um so right so that's you as a so now we've now had you as a junior player you as a player you as an injured player you as a coach and now finally i want to talk about you as a club captain um as well as a welfare officer and various other prominent roles within the club um and I want to talk a bit about how you perhaps manage players, players' perceptions when it comes to management of injuries. And this is something I've had a personal experience with you in the past. Uh, it was well, coming up to about a year ago now. Uh, we were playing a hockey game. I will give you a much simpler description than Tom gave for his injury. Basically, I dived on the floor. There was a slightly misplaced pass, pinged off a stick, and it hit me in the face um the ball was obviously traveling at some velocity it caught me just below my right eye socket um and at the time i couldn't see anything um my first thought was oh god i'm blind or i've damaged the retina or or something like that um and i i was sort of touching the area and i could feel a lot of blood and stuff and i thought have i like burst an eyeball can you burst an eyeball was that a thing um i think you I hope, can i think you can um, i've seen I, it in I a film i don't want to see it <laughs> no um uh but yeah so, so that was obviously quite a serious injury for me um my first thought actually was can i play on but obviously i couldn't see so i think the answer was no to that um got mm-hmm. taken off the pitch very luckily uh, a lovely uh, a lovely lady people described her as who was uh, the opposition's coach was a well-qualified sort of first aider and she um cleaned it all up a vision came back. I mean, it turned out the reason I couldn't see was because my eyes were covered in congealed blood, as that, opposed to uh, as opposed to like any long-term problem. But anyway, so I then was taken to hospital, not after having to sit in the clubhouse for about an hour watching my teammates eat jacket potatoes because I was obviously quite low priority. But anyway, got to the hospital, and they um, they cleaned me up. Had to have a a skull X-ray. Um, which again got sent off to like a specialist and at this point they still thought I might have fractured my eye socket um, sort of fairly minorly but then eventually I got the results back they concluded that ultimately the skull itself was fine so it was just superficial injury um, and then they repaired that and after a few probably about three or four days I could sort of take the, the sort of bandages off and then as far as I was concerned I could then play hockey again and that was also what the uh, the nurse had told me as well. Um, but obviously there were some question marks over whether I had concussion. Now, this isn't a professional setup, so we haven't got, as uh, Joni mentioned last week, we haven't got physios on the side of the pitch who are qualified in making head injury assessments. We haven't got like a, a, a doctor who can carry out a return to play procedures. So basically the policy was from England hockey was I think it was is it two weeks yeah was on that two weeks before I can play hockey at all again was it or before I can train again from from memory I think I had to I had to look it up at the time um but from memory um it's I think seven days after seven days of being symptom free um of, of any concussion and I also seem to remember that the um the, the nurse was maybe unsure about whether you I don't think she's definitely said no. You've not been concussed, but she certainly didn't say yes. You definitely have. She was a bit, a bit woolly in that area. Well, I, I don't remember this, but equally, if I can't remember it, that might mean that I did have concussion. So anyway, I... we'll move on from that. I think the the key thing takeaway from that was I had a, 
uh, a sort of a, a head injury, potential concussion, obviously superficial damage. Now, obviously, Tom, quite rightly, in your role as well for officer, had to step in. I wanted to play as a player. I was convinced I was fine to go. I wasn't thinking about long-term implications. I wasn't thinking about potential. If I got hit again in the head, I could have second knock syndrome. It could, without being too dramatic, it could potentially kill you. Um, so I wasn't thinking of those things. I was thinking I want to be back on the pitch. I wanted to play again. I want to play next week. Now, you intervened. So tell me a bit more about perhaps your thought process, um, perhaps what it's like to have someone you consider a friend being quite, uh, I don't know if I say aggressive, I mean I don't think I was aggressive, but, no, you weren't. But you weren't aggressive. quite um, pleading to play again and you trying to do the right thing by the law and by sort of your moral compass. I think what was challenging, what was challenging about that particular situation with your injury is that, um, is that within within the amateur game? You know, unlike Joni last week, we haven't, as you said, we haven't got you know physios or doctors on pitch or people that can make those assessments. So by and large, we're relying as an amateur sport on players to say what their symptoms are or what their symptoms aren't, um, and we're relying on that and and kind of you know hearsay through people that have been injured about what their doctor has said or what their nurse has said. So it's difficult to make an assessment on that. And what was what was I suppose going through my mind at the time was that first and foremost there's a bit of caution. Just some 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 caution because there'd be nothing worse, I think, for you, um long term if you were to go back onto the pitch too soon, get another knock, second knock syndrome potentially as you said die, you know, we don't want that. Um, no, that's not ideal. And it's, and equally, um, equally recognizing that you know you're keen to play, you want to play, and actually you feel fine. And I suppose it is difficult um, to deal with that, particularly when you know, particularly when yeah, you are a friend, and 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 you don't want to temper someone's enthusiasm, and equally. Thinking about it from from um, from your captain's perspective, your captain wants you to play because they want to be able to put the best eleven out there. I mean, arguably, those three things shouldn't necessarily all fit together. You know, everybody wants different things, I guess. And well, actually, that's interesting because I spoke to when I spoke to Jenny last week. I mentioned it's everyone versus the physio sometimes. So the player wants to play, the coach wants him to play or her to play, the the teammates want them to play, everyone wants them to play, apart from the physio, who's the, who's the stick in the mud. How, I suppose in this scenario, you're almost the physio, you're the one who's going, no, you can't play, the captain wants him playing, I want to play, and so on. So what's that like, I guess? I suppose what, what, what that's like is, because actually it's not that I don't want you to play, or, or I didn't want you to play, I do want you to play, and and I want you to, and I suppose I want you to be able to continue playing. I don't want you to be able to play just next week. I want you to be able to play for many weeks, and you want to be able to play for many weeks, and so does your captain. So actually, I suppose all all, all three of us were thinking the same thing. We want we want you to play. I wanted you to play when when it was safe for you to do so. Um, you wanted to play because you wanted to play because you felt fine we wanted to be sure I suppose from the club's perspective that yes you definitely were um, 
And that's not about saying where we don't think you should play. It's about saying we want you to be able to continue to play in a safe way, just as you had up until the point that that you'd done it. What do you think would have happened if you allowed me to play in the end and I had another injury? Um, what what would be the repercussions for you as a club and you as a welfare officer? Would you be under scrutiny or is it is there still at, a, at amateur level, is it still the responsibility falls on the player ultimately? No, 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 no. We'd we'd certainly have been under under a lot of scrutiny. Um you know, if if if, if we've got a policy in place that says people aren't gonna play for seven days until they've been symptom free of any concussion and we don't follow that, then ultimately we might find ourselves not insured. We might find ourselves um, in a civil court for negligence because we we knowingly allowed you to play when you hadn't met that that kind of time time period. But I think more importantly, you know, there would have been a number of people that would have felt awful, you know, myself included. And I think you know your moral compass comes in here and think, and that's where you do think about the what if, and you go, well, what if he's injured? Well, I, actually, oh my God, I would feel terrible because I didn't take active steps to say, well, look. I don't think that's a great idea for this week, but what about next week? And your kind of moral compass kicks in as well, never mind the the legal repercussions potentially. Well, yeah, no, of course. Obviously, if you'd have come back and played, you probably would have missed a pass again, really, yeah, to be honest, lost. wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so do you think then England hockey and of the, the club you're involved in and that, that set up do you think there's enough stuff in place do you think they've got it nailed down because a lot of sports in recent weeks are having a hell of a lot of questions asked about some of their processes so we've seen i don't know too much detail about this but we saw over the weekend in the big arsenal wolves game that told the david louise dramas coming out of that um there's always question marks over american football and rugby and other sports when it comes to head injuries and injury management in general do you think england hockey have it nailed down or do you yourself think there's a lot of work needs doing on that point of view i still think there's a lot of work to do um i think the sport is getting better so i think hockey um is getting better in terms of recording injuries um, and, and in particular recording head injuries um it hasn't been that long since um since we've intru- since we've introduced face masks to the game and face masks for for players that are standing in the face of goal um, at set pieces, um, it's still not mandatory, and and I suspect it won't be too long before it's mandatory for people to wear a face mask if they're going to be standing in a goal without any protection. Um, but I think what holds the sport back is the the amateur clubs. I think hold that back in terms of providing data around what actually happens on a pitch. Because it's, it's, it's very easy for a national governing body to make a decision about a sport and how safety is, 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 is managed within the sport. But those, those kinds of decisions need to be made on real hard data. Um, and it's kind of, kind of like you put a speed camera in a road depending on the number of times that there's been an accident. You know, and you record the number of accidents that you've had in order to make a safety measure change to the sport. I don't think England hockey is quite there yet in terms of recording the number of accidents and head injuries that, that that goes on in the game in order to be able to make those decisions yet. I probably shouldn't also call out the national body for needing to do more, but I think they do. That's all right. I don't think they've got a, a mafia part of the England hockey. I think you'll be all right. Do you practice what you preach? 
when it comes to your advice on injuries? Are you someone, obviously I've seen you as a coach, you're very, you're full of advice on ways to players manage themselves, to look after themselves, when to rest, when not to rest, when to, how to deal with head injuries. Are you, do you do that yourself or do you find when it comes down to it, you just play on anyway? If you've got uh, some knee pain or some hip pain or you've taken a knock, do you just go, arms oh, can play on because you know that's what I want to do, or do you, are you actually do you follow the rules you give to other people basically? I think it's I've, I struggle with it. I do struggle because because sorry. So on, on this note, I suppose I've said I work in a hospital. You'd be amazed how many respiratory consultants smoke, how many endocrinologists will sit around and eat a bag of Harry Berry at lunchtime, how many nurses drink excessive amounts of alcohol at the weekends how many pharmacists do illegal drugs after work so there's a lot of people who who follow who give great advice to patients and i suppose that's their job your job as a doctor is to give advice to treat people it's not to be a role model as such but obviously when it comes to sort of sports coaching there's sort of some great coaches who offer amazing insights into the sport without you being any good at it or you know i mean how many Premier League football managers walk around with huge waistlines. Doesn't matter at the end of the day. Your job is to manage and look after people and to win sports matches, not to be the shining example. I suppose I, I do struggle with it, and I struggle with the distinction between player and coach. You know, because in one in 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 one game I'll be the player, and in one game I'll be the coach. And and I suppose I do I do struggle with that sometimes. Um, by and large, I think I do follow my own advice, and and certainly more so since injuring myself pretty severely. I've and certainly doing that, I thought, well, I definitely need to rest this. <laughs> but I think it's also about understanding and knowing your own body and what your own body can do. And there's a difference, I think, between playing on for the sake of it and playing on because you know you're able to. For head injuries, it's very different, I think. You know, um, and there are set protocols in place for for, for head injuries, um, and there's set you know there's set in, there's set protocols in place for for blood on your shirt and that kind of thing like in most sports. So those decisions are almost already taken care care of for you as a player. Yeah. But it's those kinds of well, what do I do now if I've got some knee pain? Do I stop or do I take a paracetamol and carry on? Well, I stop because the risk of long term damage is higher now. Um, so yeah, so I, whilst I do struggle with the mentality, by and large, I think I do follow my own my own advice. So we normally finish these podcasts by asking about any other business. Um, you've already alluded to me that you haven't got any lined up, so that, that's that's fine. Um, however, I do like to try and take something of interest from each episode. So, what can what sort of advice can you give me, knowing my story, uh, that you've learned from your experience dealing with injury and life in sport? So I think I think my advice for you is 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 to not stop. Um, you know, I think you're a very driven person, so you know where you want you you know what you want to achieve, and you know what you need to do to get there. I think don't don't stop trying. That would be my advice for you. Um, and I think you know I was told certain things through my injury about what I'd be able to do and what sport I'd be able to play and whether I'd be able to walk or whatever. And and I kind of decided my own destiny as well. Actually, I, I want to be able to play that again. I want to be able to do that. So I'm going to do it. 
And I think my advice for you would be that, that, you know, with your injury, I know you've had lots of conflicting advice from different places and you've tried looking at your injury from a variety of different angles. But I think if you believe that you can achieve something, you absolutely can. That would be my advice for you. First up, let me thank Tom for that heartwarming piece of advice, as well as his interesting insights throughout this interview. Me and Tom spent much of the last few years on the same injury list, so I have witnessed his recovery firsthand. And what is interesting is, although there are clear similarities, our experiences have actually differed considerably. Tom's story of recovery has followed a broad upwards trend. Now, your recovery can never be perfectly linear. However, on average, on a week-to-week basis, he has showed marked improvements in most aspects of recovery. However, my path has been far from linear. Instead, I'm on this continuously undulating curve of ups and downs, and I suppose overall I'm probably at worse point now than I was a year ago, and a year before that, and a year before that. Tom's story is actually quite similar to Charlotte's, where there was a clear break point from which he could no longer play and had to completely reevaluate how he's going to get back into the sport. Now, in his scenario, he eventually did get back to where he was, unlike Charlotte, who took a harder path, but there are quite clear similarities there. For the second week in a row, we have strayed into the subject of head injuries and the legislation that is in place to manage such incidents. Perhaps this then is an area to explore more depth in future weeks. Particularly now, there is heightened scrutiny around sport, particularly with incidents that happened, as I mentioned in the podcast, with David Louise in the week. I said there's been incidents of in America. And so perhaps it's time we should explore a lot more depth with someone who's more knowledgeable on the subject than I am. For now, though, I hope everyone is able to utilise this opportunity to participate in sport again. I see the RFU actually have announced this week that grassroots rugby can resume uh, very soon with actual fixtures taking place between teams as early as mid-December. And that will be, be for the first time since the first lockdown has been the case. Hockey and football are due to be back this week, I believe, and I, for one, can't wait to get back in the gym and the pool. So I hope everyone can stay healthy and, most importantly, stay safe.